message from this morning. Which is Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come again thankful for your word. Thankful for your spirit who gives us understanding. And with your omnipotence, you open our hearts and our minds and our lives to receive this word. Plant your seed deep in our hearts, God, and bring forth fruit in our lives. And if there be those here or within the sound of my voice who do not know you, God, we pray for your spirit to give them new life through the power of your gospel as proclaimed through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're rolling on through Second Timothy here. Um, I think we've got six or seven more messages after this. Um, and we've covered a lot of ground, some bigger chunks and some smaller chunks. We've actually come back and reiterated some things. So as we come to verse 14 here, um, Paul has spent the bulk of this letter to Timothy to this point, encouraging Timothy to suffer as he labors for the gospel. He's given good gospel truths. He's given illustrations and even hymn-like catechesis to put forth the strong foundation that is in the doctrine to bolster Timothy in his work so that Timothy will be in the take-the-torch mindset that he needs to be in during this time of Paul's departure from this life. <clears throat> so here in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So here, Paul points back to the things that he shared with Timothy in this letter, and he calls on Timothy to remind them of these things. It would make sense that the them here refers to those Timothy is ministering to in Ephesus where he's been overseeing the church. And he's also pointing toward those that Timothy will minister to in the future, whether it be in Ephesus or somewhere else. Now, Paul will point out specific people there in Ephesus in just a little bit, which reinforces the mindset that he's speaking specifically of Ephesus. Um, but I do believe it's both and. <clears throat> so Timothy... These people that you are serving, what do they need the most? 
They need reminded. Remind. Tell them what they already know. R.W. Yarbrough says this in his commentary here. Often, people do not require new information so much as fresh exposure to what they've already learned. This need requires leaders who can balance appreciation for the novel with cultivation of unchanging norms and graces, end quote. And there is a very delicate dance that needs to be done in juggling timeless truths and new discoveries. Seems like we as individuals, we as a culture, even we as a church, have a fascination with new. We tend to get bored easily with the old and the familiar. And here, Paul is calling on Timothy to tell them again what you've already told them. And when you tell them again, tell them again. And I could go on, but I'll stop there. Remind them of these things. Martin Luther says this in his commentary on Galatians, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and in a very Martin Luther-esque way he says, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, Paul isn't saying that exactly, but he is saying it somewhat implicitly in what he's saying. Remind them. Beat it into their heads. Why? Because we forget. Or we get fascinated with something new. Or maybe, hey, you know, every how many times have you heard, you know, you've heard this before, but that's not what it means. And I say it. I know I do. Because... We like to find something new, and sometimes we need to unlearn bad teaching, but most of all we need to learn the old teaching. Remind them, remind them, and remind them some more. And don't be looking for anything new, Timothy. Don't don't hope for a breakthrough or a fresh discovery that will magically change us and give us all the answers. No, Timothy, Don't go looking for truth bombs to blow people's minds. Remind them of these things that have already been said. And, Paul says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And There's a connection there, right? Remind them of what's already been said. And and, and beat into their heads as well. Don't go arguing with people who are claiming new knowledge or new information or something deeper or greater. Just remind them of what they already know, what's already been taught. And don't, don't argue and fuss with people who are saying, no, 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 that's not the right way. And we'll get into that in a second with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Um, Paul has said similar things in 1 Timothy and in Titus, and we've discussed them a lot in different passages, and... We've quoted this verse that we're reading here in supporting those other verses. Paul is telling Timothy and us that we are not to quarrel about words. There's, that's one Greek word, quarrel about words. Logomakeo. To strive about words, to contend about words, to wrangle about empty and trifling matters. 
And again, Paul's instructions for Timothy to share with those he is serving is to not do this. Don't do it. Now, does that mean we don't engage people at all? Are we supposed to reason or work through things at all? Commentators Marshall and Towner help us here by saying this, quote, The reference is to public debate with heretics or to getting involved in verbal theological discussion. It's not that discussion with the opponents is forbidden, but descending to their level of futile debate is. End of quote. Like we've said before, it's a call to maintain dignity and reason in contending for the faith, especially in the public square. Don't descend into railing and wrangling and looking like a pagan in defending your version of Jesus to those who provoke and pick fights. And don't get caught up in impossible arguments with impossible people leading to no resolutions. Don't do that. Why? Because, Paul says, and watch this, it does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Mm. The only thing it accomplishes is that it ruins whoever hears it. And in the public square today with social media, who hears it? Every stinking body hears it. So don't do it because it's going to ruin the people who are hearing it, the people who are looking on, the people who are receiving this, even if they're not engaged in it. The only thing it accomplishes is that it ruins whoever hears it. The word for ruins is the Greek word catastrophe. And it means destruction. John MacArthur points out that the only other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament is in 2 Peter 2.6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The turning there, turning to ashes, is catastrophe. And in this verse, in 2 Peter, it refers to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah to the point of ashes. So that's the only other place that catastrophe word is used that Paul's using here in 2 Timothy 2. So think about that when you see that reference in 2 Timothy 2. Quarreling about words, arguing with impossible people, only destroys down to ashes those who hear it. You proving your point is not worth turning other people's faith into ashes. You being right or showing other people that you're smart is not worth turning other people's faith to ashes. So don't do it. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. Quarreling about words, arguing with impossible people. There are always others looking on and listening. And instead of edifying them, building them up, which is what we're called to do, we're actually reducing them and their faith to ashes by our need to be right or efforts to one-up someone who refuses to be corrected anyway. So yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't do that, but verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's quite a verse here, y'all. Here, Paul gets back to his direct call to Timothy. Do your best, he says to his primary disciple. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now watch this. Here is an appeal to Timothy to engage, exert some effort 
to push himself. Do your best is a word that means to endeavor, to be diligent, to labor. This is work. Get your hands dirty, Timothy. Work up a sweat. To what purpose? To present yourself to God as one approved. Now, whoa, what, what, wait a minute. What did Silas just talk about this morning? Is, is Paul calling on Timothy to work hard to save himself? To present himself to God as one who deserves the salvation that God's given him? No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. To present yourself to God as one approved. To come and stand before God and to know His approval. And then to work hard to make sure when you come before God, He approves of the work that you've done through the servant whom He has given His approval to. Watch this. What is Timothy to labor in so that he might know God's approval? A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now there's lots to look at in that sentence for sure. So Timothy is to present himself. He's to come to God, and he couldn't do that unless God had graciously saved him and invited him into his presence. And as Timothy comes into the presence of God, afresh and anew every day, there's a goal. First and foremost, Timothy is to present himself before God as a worker. Oh, the world and the kingdom of God has a shortage of workers. Go out there and try to hire somebody today. Good luck. As an employer, I can personally vouch for the world needing workers. And it's gotten harder every year. I've been hiring people for almost 20 years, and it's gotten harder and harder and harder every year. And you know what we need right now at my primary job? We need a general laborer. What's that mean? That means you do what we ask you to do. Pick up things, put away things, sweep things, organize things. Maybe make two pieces of metal stick together. I don't know. Whatever we need you to do, that's the kind of people that we need. And that's the mindset here. Present yourself to God as a laborer. Oh, we want celebrity status. We want glory and fame and we want people to look up to us. And and we want responsibility and leadership when God is looking for workers. Laborers. A drone. A worker bee. Timothy is not to have a goal to present himself as a man of much importance or a man of regard, but as a worker. A guy who went out and did his job. And Timothy's job, according to Paul, is one who rightly handles the word of truth. Timothy's job is to know, teach, handle, present, and help others grasp the word of truth, the word of God, the doctrine, the gospel. The teachings that Paul has labored all these years to pass on to him and future generations. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught. Timothy, rightly handle these things. In a yeoman-like fashion. 
That phrase, rightly handling, is a great Greek word. You see the word ortho, right? Ortho, tomeo, tomao. You say it, I say that you said it. Authorized version translates as rightly divide one time. Right here. To cut straight. To cut straight ways. To proceed on straight paths. Hold a straight course. Equivalent to doing right. To make straight and smooth. To handle a right. To teach the truth directly and correctly. I love that. Directly and correctly. Take the word, Timothy, and cut straight with it. Hold a straight course with it. Don't swerve to the left or to the right. Don't adapt or change it. Wield it well. Don't be sloppy with it. Be intentional with it. That's Timothy's goal. Work to make sure you're using the word correctly and skillfully. Have you ever seen somebody who handled a tool or something for their job at an expert level? It's it's impressive. I remember when we were in Tennessee, we were having carpet installed. Actually, people we lived with were having carpet installed. Um, And there was this guy, he had on big giant knee pads, and he was clambering around on all fours on the ground, and he had this thing, which I'd never seen before. And it had a sharp edge, kind of a flat edge, and it had a square end on the other end. And this dude would go all along the edges of the carpet on all fours, and he'd take that thing and he'd take the sharp flat piece on the end and get to the edge of the carpet and he'd take his knee and whack, whack, whack. And he'd shove that carpet up underneath it and he'd scoot over, whack, whack. And he was good at it. I'm like, whoa, nothing glorious. Nothing, you know, like the news isn't going to come and say, watch this. This is impressive. But I'm sitting there going, wow, this guy has taken this tool and he's mastered it. And I was impressed. He's whacking that thing with his knee with power and precision. He'd done it a few times before and he obviously knew what he was doing. And the man and the tool accomplished their job in perfect cooperation very impressively. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to. Like a surgeon cutting precisely with a razor-sharp scalpel from the top to the bottom so as to cut anything that shouldn't be cut and making sure that the incision is clean and purposeful. Take the Word of God, Timothy. Take the doctrine and skillfully labor with it, cutting from top to bottom in a clean professional stroke until it accomplishes what it is meant to do. Work so as to stand before God, knowing you labored constantly, consistently, and skillfully with His Word. Or what? Or, Paul says, you run the risk of standing before God Ashamed of what you've done. Now we are quick to say and have said many times over and over and over and over again we have no reason for shame or guilt in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus, because of the body of Jesus, because He was broken and His blood was poured out and we've received forgiveness from our sins. Anybody ever felt embarrassed in God's presence before though? How many times have I stepped out of this pulpit and went home and said, Oh my goodness. Oh, that's awful. And there's no condemnation. Praise God. And 
there's a way to handle the word that I don't have to be ashamed in the presence of God. And that's what Paul is calling Timothy and us to hear. Paul tells Timothy to labor as a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now grab a hold of that. Timothy, labor with God's word so as to be able to look God in the eye and say, I did what you told me to do. No downward gaze, no feet shuffling, but instead back straight, gaze fixed into those holy eyes with the confidence that the job is done and done well. Do your best, Timothy, to do that with the word. Handle God's word that way so that God approves because that's all that matters. Men's approval, not after it. Paul would talk about that many times. If I was seeking to please men, I wouldn't be serving God. God's approval is all that matters and his word will correct you and help you to know whether you're laboring in a way that you should be ashamed of or not. And we'll talk more about that in application. But for now, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So to this point, we've kind of followed a do, don't, do, don't pattern up to this point. Remind them, don't quarrel about words, do your best to present yourself, and now don't, which is avoid. Avoid irreverent babble. Now what's that? The literal wording is profane prattle, which I would have used, by the way, if I was translating this. Profane prattle. But avoid profane prattle. It's just, I don't know, I just like it. I'm an alliteration guy, I guess. It means common, unholy discussion. Discussion of vain and useless matters. This ties back in with what Paul said before about quarreling about words. Not only don't argue with people who are always contentious, but also don't waste time with long, constant, pointless, unholy things. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm consumed with a lot of unholy things. A lot of my talk is unholy. Is it dirty, bad, wrong? Well, sometimes it is. Is it just pointless prattle? More often than not, I'm afraid it is. And Paul says, don't do that. Avoid it. Avoid irreverent Bible. Why? For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, have you seen twice already what you're talking about, what your words are, are always affecting other people. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. What we talk about is like a leash that pulls us in that direction. And in the same way, to preface that and to precede that, what's in our hearts, Jesus says, guides our conversations. Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus says we talk about what comes out of our hearts and Paul back in 2 Timothy says what we talk about leads us to other and more forms of ungodliness. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. So avoid those unholy conversations that we tend to get caught up in. Avoid them. Like the plague. And that word avoid means to turn oneself about for the purpose of avoiding something. Sounds like repentance, doesn't it? 
You see a conversation up ahead that you know is not going to be edifying or holy and you do what you have to do in order to avoid it. Go around it. Go the other way. Do that on purpose. Don't let yourself drift into useless talk. Why? Because it's going to lead into more and more ungodliness. Be very careful what you talk about. Be very purposeful in what you talk about. We'll get into that in application as well. Because it will lead you and others to places up that road that are even further and more ungodly. But that's not all, verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So this unholy, quarrelsome talk isn't just a one and done thing. Unfortunately, it spreads. And not just spreads, it, their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, you can thank me later, but I was going to show some pictures of gangrene, but chose not to. You're welcome. You can't unsee it, I promise. Don't, don't search it. Don't do it. Blech. Let me, I'll give you, here's the mental picture, okay? Let's just say it looks at best like a frozen pizza that you forgot about and cooked for like two hours. That's what gangrene looks like. Ugh. It's gross. Oxford Dictionary defines gangrene as localized death and decomposition of body tissue resulting from either obstructed circulation or bacterial infection. And the compound problem with it is that it doesn't just get there, it spreads and can move from a fingertip or the end of a toe to a whole hand or a whole foot or a whole leg because it spreads rapidly unless it is caught and treated immediately. And so, Paul says... Will this lazy, unholy, argumentative talk, it'll spread like gangrene. You can't help it. It's going to happen. James would say a whole force to set on fire by one little word. Paul then goes on to name two guys by name. Well, that's not very nice, Paul. He had mentioned two others earlier when he was talking about people turning from him in Asia. Now here in talking about empty talkers and argumentative types, he mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus by name. Now we've, we've actually seen the name Hymenaeus before. It was way back in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Wrong way. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, different guy, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hi, Hymenaeus. Nice to meet you. Oh, you're the guy that Paul handed over to Satan. Not nice to meet you. I changed my verse. So Paul had already addressed Hymenaeus by, quote, handing him over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. That's pretty severe dealing, right? Something, something serious is going on here. Paul had excommunicated this guy and his cohort, pretty much saying, hey, devil, you can have him. Do what you want. Maybe that will make him sorry for his empty argumentative talk. And so in our passage today in 2 Timothy, Paul says that the things this guy and his like are apt to spout off are dangerous and contagious. Cut them off. 
And he would also say to us, cut this talk off because it's going to spread like gangrene. It's going to affect you and everybody that hears it. And if you've got to deliver somebody over to Satan, deliver them over to Satan in order to cut them off. Wow. You reckon this is a big deal? Paul says it is, which means the Holy Spirit says it is, which means it is. Guys like this and his like are apt to spout off dangerous and contagious things. Their talk will spread like gangrene. So don't be like them. Don't you be like them. And when you encounter them, know how to deal with them. So, but what does it mean to be like them? Verse 18. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. I find this to be really interesting. Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom we don't know anything else about, by the way, it's the only place he's mentioned, Philetus. They've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, what's that mean? It sounds crazy to us, but it, truthfully, it kind of makes sense. Matthew 27. Remember Matthew 27? Everybody's like, what? Matthew. I had to look it up too, by the way. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two after Jesus' death from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So a resurrection, besides just Jesus's, had taken place. Maybe that's what Hymenaeus and Philetus are pushing. Or... There has, is, and always will be a tendency for people to spiritualize biblical texts. To make them mean something deep or hidden or more powerful to people's minds. It's people claiming to find deeper things. Shades of meaning that the literal word does not give. So it could be that these heretics heard of the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of the redeemed, and twisted it, "Ah, that's not what it means. And they twisted it to a spiritual experience, maybe at salvation alone. Because we were resurrected with Christ. Our union with Christ, we died with Him. Our sins were buried with Him when we were raised to new life with Him. And they spiritualized a plain, simple, physical truth. We will be resurrected at the end time. We will be brought again from the grave. Our bodies will be called out of the grave, reunite with our spirits if they've been separated, and we'll have a glorified physical body. Jesus is in a physical body in the heavens right now. Resurrected in a physical body. So it could be that these heretics heard of the resurrection and twisted that, and we were resurrected in Christ... And that's really what the resurrection is. And there were seeds of what's called Gnosticism being sown in this time that saw the body, the physical matter, as evil and the spirit as pure, so anything related to the body is bad. So people would teach that there couldn't be a physical resurrection because the physical matter of the body is bad. But God's going to redeem it all, y'all. So it had to be a spiritual resurrection only which they would say took place when we were saved. So it doesn't matter what we do with our physical body. Eat, drink, because tomorrow it dies and our spirit's going to be kept pure and holy. Really, it was an excuse to sin is what it was. Because what I do in my physical body doesn't matter because my spirit's pure. 
That very well could have been what was going on here with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Philetus. Sounds like he's in Dukes of Hazard, right? <laughs> Hop in, Philetus. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. So they're teaching that this wasn't a physical resurrection. It had to be a spiritual resurrection. And that took place when we were saved. But we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 over the last two weeks, which we brought up, the physical resurrection of the people of God is a vital, central tenet to the Christian faith. And Paul goes to great lengths in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to show that this physical body is sown like a seed and it is resurrected to a glorified status that is different, yes, but still physical. But... Hymenaeus and Philetus had swerved from that truth. They'd missed the bullseye. That's what the word means. And they were out in left field somewhere peddling some deeper truth that everyone should believe if they're going to be spiritual like us. And Paul said, let the devil have them. Why? Because they're upsetting the faith of some. People were struggling to identify the truth and some had chosen to leave the false teachers leading their belief to be un- or non-orthodox taking them down a road to a misplaced faith. If the resurrection is spiritual only, well, what else is not literally true? Everything becomes up to interpretation or spiritualizing in this case. And while there are plenty of allegories and stories in the Scriptures, which you don't take literally because stories, we do seek to be literalists when the text is plain and straightforward. It's not a mystery that the Bible teaches a physical resurrection of both Jesus and those who have died after believing in Him. So let's not try to learn a mystery or a truth that's not there. Let's focus on what is plainly said, which is what Paul is calling Timothy to here. Or, sadly, we too run the risk of our faith being upset. But wait. I put the wrong... There we go. But, verse 19, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this is really good. This is either extremely comforting to you or patently frightening, if you understand it right. While some were teaching false doctrines, spiritualizing physical things, irreverent babble, arguing with other people, while that's happening, just like Paul said, people were hearing it and having their faith upset. But... God's elect, God's chosen people are secure. Their faith is not going to be upset. Watch this. How secure are they? As secure as God's firm foundation. Now note the contrastive conjunction. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. While some are being led astray, shipwrecking their faith, there's another group. One built on the firm foundation of God Himself. And it says they bear a seal, a guarantee, a proof of purchase, an inscription, if you will. And the seal on those who are God's firm foundation says this, the Lord knows those who are His. Amen. Mm. 
But that's not all it says. And the seal says, Paul says it says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now this is good. People are falling away. People are preaching false doctrine. People are arguing and babbling vain babblings. But God has a firm foundation that He is building upon. And this building that He is building bears a seal. An inscription to identify this building as His. What's He talking about? It's the church. Right? John Stott points out that the two phrases here seem to be a reference pulled from the Old Testament in the rebellion of Korah in Numbers. Numbers 16, five, so looking at this, watch this as I read Numbers 16, 5. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. And then number 1626 says this, And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. That's pretty good insight from John Stott there. I find it very interesting because Korah and his band were accusing Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves above the congregation of Israel, saying that God was speaking through them. What's Paul been saying? God is speaking through. God spoke directly to me, and now God is speaking directly through me. And so, Hymenaeus, Philetus, Alexander, who do you think you are, Paul? You think God only speaks through you? He can speak through us too. What happened to Korah and his folks, by the way? Moses said, if you die like everybody else... It wasn't God that did it. But if the earth opens up and swallows you, then you will know that God did it. Guess what happened? Earth opened, swallowed. Well, God did this then, right? Is Paul drawing a parallel to those who would contest with him and accuse him of being arrogant by saying that he is saying things from God, but their heresy is not? Seems right. John Stock goes on to say this. Although the faith of men can be upset, the foundation of God remains secure. This is the true church which he is building. It has a twofold seal or inscription. The first is secret and invisible. Namely, the Lord knows those who are his and will therefore keep them safe forever. The second is public and visible. Namely, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity and so let him prove that he belongs to the Lord by his holiness. Stott goes on to say the reference is probably to the Old Testament story of the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, from which incident both quotations come. Ultimately, Paul is saying it is only the Lord who knows and recognizes his own people and can tell the true from the spurious, for only he sees the heart. But though we cannot see the heart, we can see the life, which is the one reliable evidence of the heart's condition and is apparent to all. Both seals are essential, however, the divine and the human, the unseen and the seen. Together, they bear witness to God's firm foundation, His true church, end quote. Again, that's really good. So this seal is the proof of God's work and calling. God knows whom He has called, and those whom He has called show a change in their external life, an indicator of that inward call, which is exactly what Silas was saying here at the table this morning. And Paul in 2 Timothy is contrasting this surety, 
this unmistakableness to those who follow after false doctrine and lose the faith they claim to have had. All being said, God calls, God knows whom he has called, and we know who those called are because they're departing from iniquity. Perfectly and completely? No. Consistently? Hopefully. Progressively? Yeah. Well, I got saved at church camp when I was 14. How's your life been different since then? Oh, it wasn't. Matter of fact, I've never really thought about that. Okay. Are you departing from iniquity? What are you talking about? I said a prayer. Careful. Careful. God calls. God knows whom he has called, and we know who those called are because they're departing from iniquity. Their lives are marked by a turning from sin and a continual journey toward holiness. Not an uninterrupted climb up the mountain. Heavens no. But I'm on that plane. And if I'm not, because God's election calls his children to holiness. It's not a license to sin because it's all forgiven. That's the sure foundation that God's people are immovably anchored to. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. May it be so in me and us. Amen. Well, I'm going to pick on Silas one more time because he said Jesus didn't preach a five-point outline. I've got five application points this morning. (laughs) And I'm not Jesus, that's true too. It takes me a lot more words to say what he said in a few. Five W's. And look at this. Bling. Bling. Come on. There's our application points, okay? Work, words, word, who, walk. Who's kind of cheating? Because it doesn't sound like... Who? Work, words, word, who, talk. These are application points. First one is work. Work. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to work. And it's our work to do. God empowers us through his Holy Spirit and gives fruit to the labor. And he's not going to do it apart from us. We've got work to do. We've got work to do as followers of Jesus. We are workers and are to work in such a way as to not be ashamed of what we present to our Lord along the way and on that last day. What is said to be presented here is yourself as one approved. And who's doing the approving? 
God is doing the approving. Approved and having no need to be ashamed. And I've heard a lot of sports interviews where the one being interviewed said they left it all on the field. What are they saying? They didn't hold back. They don't have any regrets as to their effort level. And that's it. I think that's literally it. Day by day, moment by moment, we are to leave it all on the field. Laboring in the power that the Spirit gives us to do the work of God. And we'll get to what that work was for Timothy when we get to the word application point. But here I just want to highlight the need for us to be workers. And let me tell you what I think we're all of us. Here, there, across the world, I think we have minimized the work of God to this. Jason's doing the work. Jason's doing some work. But there's work to do in your life, in your home, at your job, in your community. This is not the work of God. This is part of the work of God. And when we boil down the work of God to just Sunday morning, we're missing the point. You've got work to do. I've got work to do. And I've got work to do outside of here too. You've got work to do here today. Sitting down and engaging people in conversation. Picking stuff up. Cleaning stuff up. Getting food ready. Well, that's not really... It is. And did you leave it all on the field today? Our goal, our aim is to do our best to stand in God's presence day by day, moment by moment, till we see Him face to face. And we want to be able to say, God, I left it all on the field today. I didn't take a day off. I worked and I'm sure that you, Father, will bless that work. Paul speaks of this mindset in the ever-present 1 Corinthians 15, which we just keep bringing up. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul compares his work to everybody else and says confidently that he worked harder than any of them. And he's referring mostly to the apostles there. And then acknowledges that it was the grace of God working through him. But don't miss the fact that he worked And God was responsible for the outcome of it all. Listen, be workers. Every single one of you. Me too. Labor, toil, work. And watch what God does. And stand before God and say, I sinned, I failed, I fell short today, and I left it all out there. Let's do it again tomorrow. Work. So work. Then words. Words. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Avoid irreverent babble. Those two references in our passage today show again the importance of our words in the Christian life. Paul tells Timothy to charge the believers in Ephesus not to quarrel about words and to avoid irreverent babble. Oh, please listen to me, church. Individual Christians... We must, we must, as a matter of great importance, be diligent to master our talking. 
Know what to say, know what not to say. Know when to say it and when not to say it. Know what conversations to engage and what conversations to avoid. Don't get caught up in arguments and verbal jousts that are just there for the sake of conflict. Why? There are way too many people in our contentious, polarized world today who just want to argue. And they have no desire to come to any kind of resolution. And, again, how much irreverent babble is in our lives. Now, I'm not saying we've got to walk around, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise Jesus, 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 church, 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 church. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's the goal. But how much of our daily conversation is just unholy noise? Avoid it yourself, avoid it with others for the sake of yourself and for the sake of others. But is this really a big deal? James, in a very Jamesian way, says this, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. If you can't master this little thing here, and it's hard, and there's grace for that, but if you aren't mastering your tongue, you're not bridling your tongue, forget everything else. That's what he's saying. Forget the rest of it. It's worthless. Plain and simple, James says if you think you're religious but don't control what you say, your religion is worthless. Our tongue, our words, our talking are all a direct indicator of whether or not we're truly converted. Your words will give you away. One way or the other. So direct them through the power of the Holy Spirit who will guide and empower your speech. Again, big deal. We've seen this before. But listen again to the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. And you're going, oh no. No, don't, don't, don't. It's exactly what we've talked about all morning long. Your words will be the proof of the work of God in and through you. And thank God the file containing my worthless words has, will be thrown in the trash and burned up with fire. And I won't be held accountable for them because they're sin and Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. So in response and thankfulness to that, I'm going to watch what I say. Don't read this and say, oh no. I'm not looking forward to the judgment because I've said a lot of worthless words and the blood of Jesus has covered them all. Praise God. And so then in response to that, watch what you say. Master your tongue. Mind your words. Work words and now word. Rightly handling the word of truth. This was the work that Timothy was to do primarily in this passage. And guess what? It's the work you're supposed to do too. Amen. Not just the preacher, the pasture. 
I will never tire of reiterating that so much of our Christian life boils down to what we do with the Bible. How are you handling the Bible? Do you read it? Do you love it? Do you live it? The Father sent out His Word. The Son is the Word incarnate, and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding of the Word. You can be kind, you can smile and be nice, you can help a little old lady across the road, you can stop in the rain and help somebody change their tire, you can do a lot of good things in the world without the help of the Bible. But you cannot know and please God without being saturated and focused on the Word of God. You cannot do it. So what do you mean to handle the Word? How am I supposed to handle the Word? John Wesley gives us a good picture. This is a little bit lengthy, but stay with me. Wesley says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. And at any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, which, which means a man of one book. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence, open, I read his book. For this end, to find the way to heaven, does anything appear dark and intricate? I lift up my heart to the Father of lights. I then search after and consider parallel passages. I meditate thereon. If any doubt still remain, I consult those who are experienced in the things of God, and then the writings thereby being dead, they yet speak, and what I learn that I teach. That's rightly handling the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Look back at that for a second. So the word of God is living and active, sharper, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Sounds like it cuts straight, right? Down to the very marrow of your bone. And it divides what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and therefore what you're doing. And so the word of God divides our being cut straight down to the marrow and we are to rightly handle. We're to cut straight with it down to the marrow. Rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. Oh, Christian, oh, brothers and sisters, make that your work that you handle rightly the word of God so that you don't have to stand before God's presence as you close your Bible that morning and go, eh, God, did I, did I rightly divide that? Did I understand that? Can I implement that today? And you're like, he hacked Agag to pieces. What's it mean, God? It means to ruthlessly deal with the things that God's called you to deal with. Do the things he's called you to do. Hack Agag to pieces today. Because that's what God's called you to do.
I'm like, I don't know anybody named Agag. Good. You don't have to cut anybody. <laughs> Think on these things. The Lord will give you understanding, Paul had said earlier. That's how we rightly handle the word of truth. Not just reading it say we read it, but engaging it and asking God to make it fruitful in your life. Rightly handling the word of truth. Not needing to be ashamed because I'm a worker. Work, words, word, and who. We won't spend a lot of time here, because, especially since last week's message. But again, God is the elector. In the electoral college of God, there's one vote. One. And it's God. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who knows who are His. That, like I said earlier, should be very comforting to the believer and very upsetting to the one who does not know Jesus. God's doing, God's choosing, God's knowing are the very basis of our salvation. Delight in that and thank Him for that. Can't not read this. But those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God is the one who elects. And finally, walk. Work, words, word, who, and finally, walk. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is a call to practical, everyday holiness. And I am afraid that we're so addicted to forgiveness We don't look to holiness. But that addiction to forgiveness should lead us into holiness. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord, we'll get to in a minute. Watch out spiritualizing that. Yes, we have been given Jesus' holiness as a free gift of the grace of God. And we're called to work that out too. To work that holiness out practically. If your walk isn't changed, neither is your heart. We talked about it Wednesday here. Living in the presence of God, like we talked about. Before God, in the presence of God, before the face of God. All day, every day, all the time, in everything. Alistair Begg said he could tell if somebody is progressing toward holiness or not from what they're running from what they're running to, and who they're running with. That's a pretty good indicator. So we finish with this. Hebrews 12, 12 to 16. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight, heard that before today, haven't we, paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is like sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, Don't spiritualize that passage. Practicalize it. Make it real in your life. If you are not 
declared holy, and if you are not becoming progressively holier and holier in your life, you will not see the Lord. And you will not progress in your holiness if you have not received the gift of holiness from God Himself. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if you've never placed your faith in Christ, He calls today and He says, Repent of your sins, believe the gospel, trust in Me for the, through the finished work of Christ to forgive you of your sins, to make you holy, and to call you to walk in a holy manner through the power of My Holy Spirit to the praise of My glorious grace. And if you have believed in Him, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, strive, work, work, press on, push on to present yourself as a worker who need not be ashamed in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful, powerful, wonderful truths that we see in your Bible. You've given us a book, God, and you've shown yourself to us, and now you want to show yourself through us as you make the book alive to us and us alive to the book. May we be those workers who need not be ashamed in your presence, knowing that we have rightly handled your word, not just in this message, but in our lives. Help us to avoid irreverent babble. Help us to not engage in fruitless discussions, knowing that it leads to the ruin of those who are hearing us. And God, may we labor with all of the power of your spirit who works in us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And may we stand in your presence and say, I left it all in the field today, God. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? <clears throat> oh, this is a good one. Now may the God of peace himself... Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us.